How can the scholarly process make Latinx realities visible? About this and many other important topics is this conversation with Melissa Villa Nicolas in this new episode of El Café Latinx. What is the experience of being a Latinx or Latin American scholar in the field of communication and media studies? What are the main challenges and opportunities that come with our identities? These are the issues that we'll talk about in El Café Latinx, where some of the leading voices in the field will share their professional experiences. Hola, my name is Pablo Bochkowski. I teach at Northwestern University, where I hold the Hamad bin Khalif Al Thani Chair in Communication. Together with Facundo Suenzo, a doctoral student at Northwestern and executive producer of this podcast, we invite you to discover the journeys of scholars who are at the cutting edge of creating knowledge about Latinx and Latin American communities across the Americas. These are our stories. Estas son nuestras historias. Esas son nuestras historias. Welcome to this new episode of El Café Latinx. I am delighted to have with us today Professor Melissa Villa Nicolas. She got her BA at Azusa Pacific University, focused on global studies and American literature, her BA, not the university that is, then an MA in cultural studies at Claremont Graduate University, and another MA in library and information studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and finally a PhD in information science with a minor field in queer theory at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign in 2016. Since finishing uh, her PhD, she has been at the University of Rhode Island in the Graduate School of Library and Information Studies, where she's currently assistant professor. She has received a number of very important awards and is the author of one published book, which came out earlier this year, Latinas on the Line, Invisible Labor in Telecommunications, which was published by Rutgers University Press and has already a second forthcoming book slated for publication halfway through 2023 by the University of California Press. And the book is called Data Borders, How Silicon Valley is Building an Industry from Immigrant Data. On top of that, Melissa has a number of journal articles in very prestigious publications such as American Quarterly, Social Media and Society and Feminist Media Studies. Without further ado, Melissa, welcome to El Café Latinx. Thank you so much, Pablo. I'm glad to be here. And I really appreciate your the center and all of the work you all have done. I've been a fan for a while. So it's exciting to make it onto the into the list. Oh, we, we've been waiting to have you for quite some time. We were waiting for the book to come out that yeah. gave us the cue. So we are truly thrilled uh, that you are able to join us. So Melissa, how did it all begin for you? That is, how was the start of the journey that led you to become a professor? Um, it's so funny because you could just keep going back and back. Um, well, so I am a first-generation college student. My parents didn't go to college. Um, and I, as I had been going through college, I just wanted to write. I wanted a job that prioritized writing and getting better at writing. So I went through college. I 
I lived in LA and worked for nonprofits um, because I wanted to also do social justice work. But I came back to my master's in cultural studies and then my master's in library and information studies because I was really trying to merge like academic and culture and wanting to write and think with doing sort of more social justice type work. Um, so I was trying to merge those things and I just kept leaning towards wanting to be a faculty, wanting to be a professor so I could prioritize um, producing more knowledge, especially in the vein of Latinx histories, Latinx histories that I knew. So um, all of this work that I had studied like in my master's degree and master's in information studies and then my PhD in information science kind of all came together with the Latinx studies that I studied during my cultural studies degree. And I wanted to produce more um, work along those lines that merged all of those fields. Okay, so so let's go back to the first thing, one first things you said. So you said you're a first generation college student. How has that informed and shaped, if at all, which I, I'm guessing the answer is that it has, mm -hmm. your intellectual trajectory and your decision uh, to focus on certain fields and not others? You alluded a little bit already to that. And uh, your work as a graduate student. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, as a graduate student, you kind of feel like you're just feeling around in the dark because, and it's not, you know, grateful for all of the work my parents did, but you don't always have someone to ask, like through college and through graduate school and especially getting your PhD, like there's cultural norms and just so many things that like you kind of wonder like is this do people who come from lines of family that went to college like have someone to ask about certain things so you're feeling around and trying to figure it all out um and I think that really impacted everything I did but I also like I I value so much my parents work so my mom was a telephone operator my dad worked in the mailroom and now he's a manager in telecommunications. So like I always valued that level of work in telecommunications and I wanted to bring that value into my graduate degrees and into my writing. Um, so I guess like my family, my grandparents that were from Mexico, you know, they didn't have, I'd probably not be on a third grade education. And I always saw like, those people in my family as like just as smart as the people getting their PhDs. <laughs> like, and I've always thought that getting, going through, you know, going through the tenure process and everything else, like, and being faculty, I just still see like everyone that was in my family with different levels of education as just as smart as people in academia. And so I kind of like, that's been part of my process as well. Um, I don't know if that answers your question, but it's just all how I how I view um, knowledge and knowledge production in what I do and what I write. No, absolutely. And, you know, being in graduate school, in particular during your PhD, which is a research-focused program, right? Your MA in library information science probably was more practically oriented. Mm 
Um, during the PhD, um, I'm guessing you, so there was not a majority of first generation students, mm -hmm. right? Right. Um, how was the experience for you, right? Trying to navigate, uh, you know, research one, uh, doctoral mm -hmm. program. How did you find your resources? Um, how did you sort of, um, you know, position yourself for success in one word? Yeah, I think it's just so through community and other, especially other graduate students experiencing like similar circumstances where they don't necessarily feel like they have a place in academia right away, or they don't feel comfortable right away because the culture feels like it's like already built, privilege is already built in there. Like you just feel like you're not supposed to be there sometimes. So I met friends and mentors that were just really there um, to provide support along the way. And I think that, you know, other Latino students, um, Black students in information science, and my mentor was Sophia Noble at in University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign, and um, Angie Valdivia, who's in communications at Urbana-Champaign, was also in my dissertation community committee. It's like all these people that I met were just so supportive, and I could sort of like ask and talk to them about like, you know, how do we do this? Or like publishing, you know, I mean, as a graduate student, like I had Sophia Noble telling me like, you have to, you have to publish, like you need to start on this, you know? And you don't always have faculty telling you like the unspoken rules. Um, you kind of just land in the middle of it unless you have a program or like maybe a university that's really built out the steps for you as a PhD student who wants to be faculty. So I was just lucky to have mentors and other graduate students that were um, Latino and students of color that were just providing like community and would fill in the gaps with each other <laughs> um, on how to be successful in academia. Okay. And when did you know your dissertation topic. I'm not going to ask you how did you find it because given your family history, um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's almost self-evident, but when did you know that you wanted to write about that a scholarly text? Yeah, um, I think it was my first year. I was feeling around for topics as a doctoral student and um, I was kind of exploring things that people were talking about in information science. Um, you know, Sophia Noble had, was presenting algorithms of oppression, but it wasn't out yet. But that was like a big topic in our department and in the climate. Um, we were seeing a lot on different technology changes, especially in the department. Um, so I was kind of feeling around like, do I want to focus on digital archives? Do I want to focus on contemporary? Um, data surveillance, but that first year, I just thought, like, I just want to write what I already know, which is, like, my family. I know that, you know, my mom was a telephone operator. My tias were telephone operators. My tios were on working on the lines, like, in the telephone poles. Um, I still have family that lays the um, cable. <clears throat> 
you know, every time a wireless network changes, cables change. I still have family that does that. So I just knew like I wanted to focus on that. Partially also being at University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign is so far from my family in California. It's like every research, every research topic I do in California means I can get back to California and see my family. And that's really hard being so far. So I could do interviews out there. I could explore the archives out there and I could have a reason to keep, to have more time with my family. So I think the first year I kind of figured that out, like I could establish this history um, of Latinos and telecommunications and also like have reasons to get to be around my family as a graduate student who just felt so far from, <laughs> from California. <laughs> totally. And how's the process of write, doing research and writing the dissertation? What were the main challenges mm -hmm. that you confronted and how did you deal with them? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I was doing, it, Illinois, I was doing like histories of telecommunications courses and really learning like the foundations of science and technology studies. Um, so I was learning that and then kind of seeing the gaps or like where I could, you know, the sort of the literature review conversation, like where can I fit into this? Where is like, where is my conversation in this? Um, so then I would go back to California and start interviewing people on their experiences as telephone operators. Um, and I feel like I did that first, like interviewed a handful of people. And I usually kind of, I don't know if I do it backwards, like, but I tend to do that, like interview people about their experiences and then work backwards into like filling in the gaps. Cause I kind of want to lay, I like to lay those oral histories as the foundation of what I'm pursuing. Um, so like whatever patterns came up from the Latinas that I was interviewing in telecommunications, then I wanted to go back and look in the archives. Also, I think because because I study library information studies and it was so hard to find like Latinas in the, the larger telecommunication archives. I think just like as a method, I tend to feel like stubbornly, like I wanna <clears throat> validate knowledge based on like what people say first <laughs> and then either find it in the archive or not. So it's like, like I, I just believe that oral history and interviews like are as valuable as other as other data gatherings. So after I interviewed um, family and friends and started to feel around, I traveled to the um, Stanford archives where there were um, there was a whole like the whole EEOC lawsuit was archived um, with Maldef and Serla, these Latino legal rights organizations in California who. Um, collaborated on this very large affirmative action suit against um, AT&T in the 70s. So I do the interviews and then I go into the archives and feel around and look at what I see there. Um, but, and I sort of tried to do that with data borders as well, like seeing what's going on with um, Silicon Valley and like, more and more surveillance technologies being tested on the border and then trying to interview people as I go and kind of like prioritize what they're saying and experiencing. Um, 
I try to lead with with that. So I hope that answers your question. But that tends to be my like method of madness. Um, I think just coming from information science, where like big data is so valued, <clears throat> again, it's like my stubborn response is like I'm going to interview one person, and this one person is going to be like just as valuable as a billion bytes of data to me. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Let, let me follow up on that. So in addition to these practical sort of challenges on the gathering of information, by design, your topic, it seems to me, across the two books, um, has a, a built-in additional challenge when it comes to communicating the findings. Because so you are trying to make visible a topic or a phenomenon that society by design is trying to make invisible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. um, as if it didn't really exist. Mm -hmm. Right? Um, how have you addressed that? And what kind of uh, reaction have you encountered from different audiences about telling them, hey, this reality exists? And there is a tremendous effort to ignore it because ignorance is not in this case something that happens just randomly. There is mm -hmm. significant concerted effort to make yeah. certain realities invisible or unworthy even. So how have you dealt with this? Yeah, I mean, in both books, I kind of say like there is a Latinx information technology history and labors and they're you know intentionally invisible. Um, I, uh, I credit like the invisibility to like the, you know, these large tech moguls all the way from AT&T in, you know, 18th century, um, on that, like Alexander Graham Bell, like, like it's part of like American Western value to have one person that discovered a tech and like they that story is part of sort of America prog American progress, you know. Um, one person that discovered this and like it changed the whole way we do things. Um, when really like you always have an underlying labor force that's building the infrastructure. So I always try to identify that when I write um, to erode that that value um, system, like that there's one hero of the story of a tech story. Um, I in with Latinas on the line, I get a, I've gotten a lot of response that's like, you know, well, this could be white telephone operators. Like these are just this could have been white women. Like I get it a lot um, when I was first writing it, and you know, I have to position um, that as like because of their experience as Latinas, like that's why this matters like because they're Latinas, because of their identity, that's why their history matters. I mean, then there's also like from the archives and from their experience, like structural reasons why it's not the same as like a white woman telephone operator. Um, so, and you know, their entrance into telecommunications was much later than um, white Anglo women because of affirmative action and white Anglo women were like in the 19th century kind of valued as a more um, pink collar or even like white collar work. And then as 
the tech industry shifted and more women of color were brought in, it was like shifted as more blue collar work. But um, I kind of have to explain that a lot because like a lot of folks, which is why in the book, I always have this like, why Latinas? Why Latinas? Like I go over and over it, over and over again. Cause I know people are kind of asking like, why Latinas? This could be like anyone that experienced it like this. Um, but I tend to say like, it matters because it matters. And again, like I could take one Latina story, especially cause they go for like 30 years in telecommunications and like that, <laughs> matters you know um and I think it's more established in like Latino studies I think about like Vicky Ruiz's work like a lot of Latino studies and different ethnic studies um have already established that like one person's story matters as a history but in information science we kind of have to defend it over and over again <laughs> totally Speaking about information studies, so you are finishing your PhD, you are thinking about the job market based on the things you already said, I think you are focused on becoming a faculty uh, mm -hmm. member, um, rather than going into other sectors of the economy. Um, mm -hmm. How was the search process for you, the job search process? Hmm. Um, I mean, again, I think I was lucky that I had mentors prepping me from like year one because to, you know, like have a publication by the end of your um, doctoral studies, like, you know, presenting, but like have something out there, at least in process. Um, so I felt like I was really well prepped for it. I just, I you know, it's that sort of like the way academic job markets go, it's like you apply in fall and then you wait and you hear in spring or like, it's just the academic job market like calendar that I think almost is the hardest part as a doctoral student, you know, you're doing, and especially as a doctoral student, I have to say, because you're doing your dissertation and you're also applying to faculty positions. So it's like, you've got two major things going on. Um, so I, again, I think the process, like it was, you know, like it is for everyone, like you, a lot of work and a lot of preparation and a lot of ups and downs and, you know, rejection or success. And that's all part of it. But I just, I think, cause I had such supportive mentors, like it went more smoothly, um, and then I had just, I just had supportive people in my life, like jobs that I didn't get. It's like, you know, they, it's okay. Like, it's okay that you don't get all of the academic jobs or some of them that don't work out is for the better, you know? So I think that just having those supportive voices during it is probably one of the most important things as a doctoral student um, to kind of coach you through the roller coaster that is like applying and doing the on-campus interview and waiting. <laughs> totally. And once you started at Rhode Island, how was the transition from being a graduate student to becoming a faculty member? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, okay, so, so again, like, it's funny because I feel like doctoral students, like, 
we prepare as researchers and like sometimes you get experience as TAs and then you become faculty and you're like my job is to teach and I might have overly spent time on research and now I am a teacher <laughs> um you know and you have to do the work-life balance like you're learning to be you want to be a great teacher a great instructor and you also have to keep your research going so that transition is hard I think my first year all I could do was focus on like getting my classes going and you know focusing on lectures and like how do I want to teach these classes um I feel like looking back like my first year was just feeling just teaching you know and trying to be a great teacher so I was doing professional development and learning new teaching methods um you know at my at the time I came into academia was the like flipped classroom trend <laughs> every couple of years like I think there will be a different trend of like how to do something um so I was learning all of that my first year and and then trying to remind myself like I have to research and write <laughs> because in the end um I don't want to be harsh about it, but like in the end, your research gets you tenure and, you know, teaching and su successful teaching is so important, but, and service, like all of those things will come at you. But I feel like in the end for so many institutes, like they're looking at your research first. So um, it's that balance. And if we're giving advice to doctoral students, you know, just be ready for the, like the oh my gosh, I'm a teacher. I'm actually a teacher. Like I thought I was a researcher, but like, but you feel like your first job is teacher. And then you just have to remind yourself that like research is very high up there, um, on what your, on what your job is and what you want to do or, you know, so I think that those were the two things really coming at me my first year. And how did you then start to you know, recover more time or set aside more time for for research and writing. Any strategies that you can share? Yeah, I really did because, um, yeah, so because, you know, you're teaching a new load of classes, so you have to figure out, like, how you're going to teach everything, and then you remember you're supposed to be doing research. So I actually dove deep into Cal Newport's work, and he, he's a time management um Ooh researcher and you know he I think it's like a mathematician or comp he does computers um but he's written on time management especially in the digital age so the takeaways from that is um and I also read um how to write your article in eight weeks I think that's what's called a writing your article in eight weeks um those two were the two biggest that I had to learn from um so Cal Newport, it's like the takeaway from that is like every time you look at your phone or any technology, your brain is still thinking about that thing, whether you think you're focusing or not. He And he's, you know, it's the neuroscience behind it. It's the research behind it. So in order to do like deep thought work, <clears throat> you really have to um, manage your time away from looking at too many devices. Like so that, that was an important takeaway, um, you know, turning off all alerts, everything, um, 
that might distract you from just research or just writing. <clears throat> um, okay. Okay. So for for Cal Newport or for these like efficiency um, researchers, they find that um, people can only do like three to five tasks a day, truly like well. So organizing <clears throat> your day into the amount of tasks that you can actually take on. Um, his work is called Deep Work. That's the book I would recommend. Um, but so it'll go more into that. So I like dove into, okay, how do I do research well with the amount of time I have? And then the writing your article in eight weeks, you um, what they found with the research is on, on writing is if you write 30 minutes a day, you will get more articles out of it than binge writing. So like, I'm going to do all my service and all my teaching. And then like Friday's my writing day. Unfortunately, what they found at least for more people is like, if you write for a smaller amount or research every day, you will just have more production than trying to binge that work. So that's like the research behind it. And so I just did what, what I saw um, the research saying. The writing your journal article in eight weeks is like my academic Bible. I just follow that to a T. Um, so I really recommend that. Um, so it'll give you great tips. But I also like, you know, your first year as a graduate student, you'll be told like, you know, you. I mean, you'll really feel like teaching is the thing you you need to be doing. Um, and then service really comes at you. I would write like on a board in front of me, like research, teaching, service, and to remember the things that are like actually priority. Some people want to teach and like they want to focus on teaching and that's totally fine. Like if that's the passion that you want to like, you put that first, but I would just constantly have it in front of me that like research had to come first. So I wanted, that had to be the first thing I did. Cal Newport also, and other um, folks that have researched like efficiency, <clears throat> tell you not to only check your email twice a day, <laughs> which is really hard, I know. But if your job isn't like, if if your job is not to check your email, like try to do it um, just twice a day. And also the research, again, the research on it is that you will actually respond to emails more efficiently um, if you check it less often and just focus on that. So that's my big response because I felt like as a first year, you know, I just really had to um, figure out how to do all those things at once. <laughs> totally. And, and as you transition out of your first year, I'm sure, well, at least it happens to most people, that's when they go back to the dissertation full force and try to turn that into a book. Yep. Yep. So how was that process for you? Um, so I think there's actually a book that's like turning your dissertation into a book. So I made sure to have that book. Um, I, you know, I had, again, I had really great dissertation committee mentors who had done the same. So I asked them about doing that. Um, I was still gathering like my dissertation I finished, but I was still needed to gather more data um, a couple years into starting as a faculty. 
Um, so I was still kind of like feeling around gathering data. Um, a big part of it also, I mean, it's, it's really mind bending to try to move a dissertation towards a book. So that's why I recommend that book because a dissertation is like this one thing and trying to turn it into a book is so difficult than like writing it as a book from the beginning. <laughs> um, but I feel like I was also lucky um, that one of my dissertation committee members gave me a couple of emails for publishers um, because I had sent a lot of cold emails and like didn't get a lot of response. And then I found like one of my advisors told me, here you go, like tell these two people I sent you. <laughs> and that's how I got the response for getting um, for getting a contract. So again, it's just like having that support to get there was really big. Um, I just don't, I couldn't do it without those folks helping me, like mentoring. Totally, it does take a village. Um, but and, and the writing per se, did you feel that you had to change a lot of the writing because the audience was bigger than just the committee? Um, you know, beyond adding more data, how much work was there on the writing itself? Yeah, um, I mean, I had to go back and shift a lot so that I was thinking more about a book audience and dissertation. So I just, I felt like I rewrote so much. And then I was like, I was sad that some of the stuff in the dissertation didn't make it into the book because it was like so much rewriting. I would go back and be like, oh, but there's like this good stuff in the dissertation that didn't make it in. Um, so it is, it felt like everything, I, it felt like it was a lot of rewriting, but I had already rewritten some of it for articles. Like one article was in Aslan, um, one article was in an edited book. So those felt like they were already I had already rewritten them from the dissertation into an article. So they fit more easily into the book. And then I, at the end, I was still gathering data. And um, I, on this one woman I knew who had worked like her entire life in telecommunications and <clears throat> bounced back and forth as a telephone operator and as a manager. And I did that and wrote this last chapter on her. And I just, it's like the project never feels finished just like a dissertation because <clears throat> every person I learn about I'm like oh, I just want to keep going and like shift the project again <laughs> around this experience so you kind of have to wrap it up eventually um when I think back on it I still feel like oh there's one more chapter I would add if I could add another chapter because insights still come and I'm like oh but there was this one thing like I didn't write about <laughs> which is terrible because it kind of like just want to wrap you know, just like the dissertation, the best dissertation is a done dissertation, but I feel like there's always something I can add to Latinas on the line. Like there's so much going on in those eras, especially the seventies, especially in Latino lives, you know, Chicano lives. <clears throat> so it never feels finished. <laughs> and have your family members and or your you know, subjects or research participants um, read it? And if so, what have they say? Yeah, they did. Last December, I went out there and they were like, we bought the book. And I was like, don't buy it. I have a box at home. <laughs> like, just tell me and I'll ship it to you. Um, so yeah, they did read it. 
you know, a lot of them liked it and liked engaging with it. Um, I didn't get to talk to some people I interviewed. I didn't get to follow up with <clears throat> some people. I just, as I started to think about patterns that I like wanted to think about more, I, I followed up in the sense, I just wanted to talk to them about it. Like the telephone operators had something that was like a split shift. And this is something I learned from the last woman who I focused on um, in the last chapter, like their lives were organized around like, or they could organize their lives around the split shift. So they could go in at four o'clock at night, leave at eight, go home, make dinner, put their kids to bed, come back at midnight, work till 4 a.m. And like some of them did this for a long time to make it work around their lives, like going to college, having children. And I didn't get to write about that as a chapter. It kind of came to me that it should have been a whole, I should have done a whole focus on it like much later. So I just went back and talked to family members about it. Um, and I'm still talking to them about it because it's like, it's just so endlessly fascinating. And, um, you know, it was how they organized their, their lives. So yeah, I still go back and just, just talk to them out of interest. So in addition to writing Latinas on the line, you evidently were working in parallel on your second book because there is like a year and a half gap in publication dates for them, right? Um, so when did you start working on that book? How, how did you manage the two at the same time or some overlap? I'm, I'm guessing, I'm not sure, but I'm guessing there was some overlap. Yeah, um, I finished the prep, like, you know, there's this, there's about a year of um, in press, like uh, that the press is doing work mm -hmm. on the final copies. So I was finishing that up um, with Latinas on the line. I think it was like 2019 when, yeah, I feel like this, I'm trying to remember when the last interviews I was conducting, I feel like maybe that was 2018 and then 2019, it was really in press. Um, and it took a couple of years to get, you know, just I probably also because of, yeah, it was because of COVID because we'd end up at home and I was like, I needed to push the deadlines out for Latinas on the line. Um, so then as I was really finishing the like, you know, the indexing, all of that with Latinas on the line, I was kind of looking at these emerging trends um, where data borders. And I, I was like, I don't feel like I could ignore it anymore. Like I didn't want to dive in because I was like, it just feels like such a conspiracy theory to talk about <laughs> surveillance technology. Like it, you just start to, once you die, try to dive in and make sense of it, it, you just have like, it just, it's a lot. Um, but I didn't want to ignore it anymore, especially because of my hometown. Like I just saw so much of some of the industries um, when I'd see them on the news, it really looked like they were testing in my hometown. Um, so I just felt like I couldn't ignore that anymore. So I started, I have actually a couple articles, I think that came out in 2019 about data borders where I was just starting to like 
talk about it and think about it. Um, and <clears throat> then my editor reached out to me and said, do you have any books that you're thinking about? And I said, you know, there is one that I've kind of been thinking about <clears throat> and I had about a chapter of it um, and an outline. So I, I sent it to her and UC Press wanted it. Um, then it was like winter of 2020 and I was suddenly home with my toddler <laughs> all the time because of COVID or spring because it was very cold. But I think that whole thing really helped helped me write because I just needed something to anchor to. So I was writing data borders a lot of times at like 4 a.m. <clears throat> and then my partner would go to work. You know, we don't have like two white collar <laughs> parents here like I was home with my toddler and working full-time um so I would just get up because I felt I think it just helped me like feel like grounded to something and then I was just with a young child all day <laughs> so I, I think it kind of gave me energy to write data borders and then um I had been doing interviews with folks from my hometown for years like as my next research steps and like different, um, you know, immigrants like undocumented, DACA, naturalized and how they were using technologies. But I, I had been doing that for years before <clears throat> kind of seeing the data borders trend happening. And, but I didn't ever use that data because I didn't, I was like, I don't know what's producing more surveillance on people. So I was just trying to do the interviews and feel around um, but I, without many like goals of turning it into an article. So then as COVID restrictions lifted, I could start interviewing people more about their experience with surveillance technologies. And, um, you know, like as I went kind of wrote data borders, I started to see like, I wanted a liberatory response that actually interviews <clears throat> undocumented friends and you know, family friends that I've known for years on like how they would imagine the border. So it turned into more of a project that was like, I guess it it's a little bit more like alternative than what I'm usually doing, but I wanted it to be like that. Like, let's just talk about how we would imagine the border, how we would imagine technology. Cause I was thinking about like, Silicon Valley and how they have like all the resources in the world and all the money in the world. <clears throat> and like, what if we could just do build anything we wanted? Like, what would we do? Um, so I think it, a lot of it went with the arc of COVID of just like having a lot of energy, like needing a project to work on. And then as the restrictions lifted, I could finally go back to California and interview people with more of a focus on like thinking about data borders. Fascinating. I, I, I wouldn't have expected that response, actually. So, <laughs> so in terms of the writing, I mean, thinking about my own experience or talking to other people who have more than one book, um, when the first book is a dissertation-based book, mm -hmm. many times there is a significant difference mm -hmm. in the experience of writing the first book and the experience of writing the second book. <laughs> How, how was that in your case? Was it very different? Was it not? And if it was very different, how would you characterize the difference? 
I think again, like move, trying to shift a dissertation to a book is so, it's just, you have to like, I almost felt like I had to rewrite it, but it was already in this mold in my head. Okay. So writing data borders, it just felt so much more linear and like, it just kind of came out because it wasn't like I was trying to rework, you know, everything I'd been working on for the four years while it was a dissertation. And then like, 2016 to 2019, like three years trying to shift it towards a book. Data borders just felt like, oh, like here's the outline, here's the content, like the data gathering. Um, you know, a lot of it was kind of looking at media and government documents at first, and then going to do the interviews after understanding that landscape. Um, it just came out so much easier. But I wish. And also probably also just having an experience of writing mm -hmm. Latinas on the line, like writing a book, the second one felt easier. <clears throat> I wish Latinas on the line, like I wish I had the experience of like a full book, academic book under my belt so that that, because I just wish I could write that forever. Like I wish I could write like volumes of it <laughs> because we're talking about like Mexican women, Latinas that or telephone operators in the 70s, like coming of age, getting financial independence, and also like engaging deeply with technologies. I just feel like it's like a story that never ends for me. Like I, I'm like, oh, can I write like a second and third book? Are we allowed to do that in academia? <laughs> we are. I don't see why not. Yeah, because now it just feels like it is a little easier like it doesn't feel as intimidating you know and at the time as a young scholar like it was also about getting the book contract and that was hard there was a lot of rejections until I like you until my one of my mentors was like use my name and I used her name and that that happened but now I don't have to think of as much about like getting the contract I feel like the flow of writing the books it there's just like more about the book um, if that makes sense. But yeah, I, I do think maybe it just gets easier also with experience. Okay, now, and, 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 and with that experience, with the ease that comes with time, we're having two books now finished. What's next for you in terms of research projects? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, I'm just so tired. <laughs> a big nap. No, I actually, so... Um, I'm going in for tenure and I hope, um, assuming I get tenure, I hope to take a good sabbatical. So I, I put sabbatical out a couple of years so I can write grants. Um, the dream would be a Latina Information Technology Center, literally with my mom <laughs> and family members and friends, because I will challenge like anyone listening right now that's Latino text a mom or a tia or a abuela and say, what technology would you learn if you could learn anything in the world? Like, and they will probably say a desktop computer because this is the research I've been doing. Like our family members that are in an older generation, they can use their phones really well and tablets and they are, you know, they're technologically literate, <clears throat> but they, a lot of them feel like they missed out on the desktop or laptop. So I really, I'm trying to get grants and the big dream is to build, you know, a center or um, 
a place to come together on Latino women's terms, like where do they want to learn? So I'm thinking about, because I have a background in libraries, I'm thinking about the library and a lot of the people I've been interviewing don't go to the library because they can't guarantee like <clears throat> people speak Spanish or they just don't always feel like it reflects them in certain communities, um, mine in particular. So my questions here are like, where would you want to learn the computer? Who do you want to be there? What do you want to learn? You know, what do you want to listen to? Or like, where do you feel comfortable doing this? Um, and I'm thinking about older Latinas in their fifties and older. Um, that's the hope is much more project-based and maybe research will come out of it. But <clears throat> my hope is just to have money to like, also, you know, just do whatever, like if they want to learn Microsoft Word, great. And for no ends, because again, I'm in library information science. So there's a lot of like missionary based language on like minority communities, like learn a computer to go to college, like absolutely no ends, except that like your mom or Wellas might just want to learn this and have fun. Like they just might want to learn computers just because that's at least for my community that's what's going on at least in my community. And so that's the hope, but I have a lot of grant writing to do, <laughs> a lot of fundraising. And it is, again, it's that shift. It's like turning a dissertation into a book, like shifting from writing for a book to writing for large grants is now the transition I'm going through as a scholar. <laughs> it's painful. <laughs> cool, and speaking of that then, if you had magical powers and could be granted one wish, about how you would like the field of communication and media studies to change. What would you wish for? <laughs> um, you know, I've said this in my work before. I, I think I just that there's more work on um, Latinx science and technology histories and foundations. Um, but I know there's this bridge, you know, like media and communication isn't not information technologies. Mm -hmm. So I I know I'm not trying to like neglect everything that's been done already because there are so many Absolutely. Latinx media scholars that have done so much fa fantastic work. I just want like more of the, the histories of technologies that are so solid in um, on sci science and technology studies, like on the history of AT&T or that I just want that, but like the Mexican histories, the Latinx histories, like more solidified um, because they're out there. And I just want to see more of that, of that work, you know, to read it and to enjoy it. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Melissa, for a great conversation, for sharing your knowledge and experience. With us, thank you to our listeners for staying with us through the end. And I invite everybody to join us for the next episode of El Café Latinx. Thanks again, Melissa. Thank you so much. Thank you all. El Café Latinx is a production of the Center for Latinx Digital Media in the Department of Communication Studies at Northwestern University. I'm Pablo Wojcicki, the host, and I'm joined by executive producer Facundo Swenson.